which is part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. Today's teaching is by Pastor Daryl Ruin. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Good morning. How are we? Good? Good. Well, welcome. If this is your first time, we're glad you're here or your first time in a long time. We're glad you're here as well. Uh, We are in the middle, we've got just a couple weeks left in our series that we're calling The Dash. Uh, The premise of the series, if this is your first time in this series, is a poem by the same name called The Dash. And The Dash represents that little mark that'll be on your tombstone between your birth date and your end date. Alright, that is The Dash. And the poem, the point of the poem is that we, we make sure that we spend our dash wisely. Yeah? Are you spending your dash wisely? We as Christians, we have a model for how we spend our dash, don't we? We have a model that is the perfect example, Jesus Christ. I got to thinking after reading that poem that my mother-in-law and both my mom sent me and said that it had to be used in a sermon at some point, so I turned it into a whole series um, just to be safe. I got to thinking that the real key there is not not just that we motivate ourselves to spend our dash wisely, which we have to do, right? I mean, we could have that pep talk sermon about making sure that we spend our dash wisely. Our days are limited. Our days are numbered, right? Make sure we use every waking moment to glorify God and to expand His kingdom, right? We could have, we could have that message. But, but beyond that, I thought what might be even more helpful is to take it a step further and and ask ourselves, well, what can we learn from the dash of Jesus? Between his cradle and his grave, what can we learn from the days that he lived on this earth? Not not just his his Christmas story and not just the Easter story. We'll get there in April, late April, by the way, this year. We'll get there. But what about the days in between? Jesus' every days, his Mondays, his Thursdays, his Friday nights. What can we learn from Scripture? What does it tell us about about those days, and, and really, I'll be honest with you, this is, this is uh, a study that I wanted to do personally, and so it was easy to turn into a sermon. I've been searching the Gospels primarily because that's where Scripture focuses on the days of Jesus between Christmas and Easter. I've been searching the Scriptures looking for just the everyday Jesus. What can the everyday Jesus tell me about what my everyday should look like? And so we've done three of these so far, three sermonettes on the dash of Jesus. Week one, we saw that if we, if we look at the, the, the first time Jesus steps onto the scene of his ministry, we realize that it had, been, it had been 18 years since we heard of him previously. 18 years have gone by, and we know nothing about, about that time period of Jesus' life from age 12 until 30 when he steps on the scene to begin his public ministry. And he, and he steps onto the scene being baptized by John the Baptist. And we looked at that passage, and in the end we said, you know, if we look at the life of Jesus, we, we've got to agree that he was patiently obedient. To live in obscurity in a, in a town that no one really knows for 30 years, never being recognized, until one day God says it's time, and, and now he steps on the scene, he gets baptized by John the Baptist, the dove descends, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. That, that whole story. But we, but we said, isn't it, isn't it, isn't it funny? that we've heard nothing from him until 30 years old and he begins his public ministry. We have to to assume that he was patiently obedient. He waited because that was the Father's plan. He waited. In the second week, we talked about him being not just patiently obedient, but being humbly obedient. We said 
by several scriptures that we saw throughout his life between Christmas and Easter. We saw that he was submissive to his parents. We saw that he was baptized by a sinner, a sinner who said, listen, I'm not the one that should be baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. This isn't right. I'm baptizing for the remission of sins, essentially. So this, this, doesn't, this doesn't need to happen. And Jesus said, listen, no, it does need to happen. Let's do it. And he was, he was humbly obedient, even in his baptism. Render unto Caesar. What is Caesar's? And we looked at a few different passages that just, that just recorded throughout the life of Jesus that it didn't matter how big or how small. It didn't have to be the cross that we see Jesus being obedient. He, he was humbly obedient every day, every day of his life. No matter what the situation was, no matter whether it was public or no matter whether it was private, no matter whether it was going to make a, a big scene or no scene at all, we always find Jesus in the Gospels being humbly obedient. So he was patiently obedient. He was humbly obedient. And then last week we talked about him being simply obedient. And if you remember, we talked about last week that very simply as we read through the Gospels with a very honest, uh, with a very honest eye, we find that Jesus didn't burst onto the scene to take over the world. It was 30 before he started his public ministry. It was 30 before he started to cause an offense among the powers that be. It was 30 before he really started to make the impact. And he's the most impactful person to have ever lived. And we gathered from that that he was simply obedient. Not just patiently obedient and humbly obedient, but he was just simply obedient. What I, what I explained to you and what I meant by that was that he did the Father's will in the Father's timing. To those the Father said, to go to, very specifically within the geographical region that the Father had anointed and, and, and set apart for him to be in, he, he even had a very limited and specific and simple theological message. It was the kingdom. That was how he would quantify it himself. And so as we look at the life of Jesus, from, from the days from his birth to his death, and those, those, even those three very prominent and public years at the end of his life, we found that he, he never did anything and never said anything unless the Father told him to. And I don't know about you, but I find that interesting, that the person who would become the most influential person throughout all of history, when God decided to come to earth in the form of man, the greatest missionary, the greatest um, preacher that would ever live, he was simply obedient in that he didn't say anything or do anything unless the Father prompted him to do that. He wasn't overzealous or overambitious. I think there's something, something for us to learn about that. I know there's something for, for we in the full-time ministry to learn about that. He, he very simply did the Father's will. He even waited on the Father's timing. He never got ahead of the Father. He would say several times, now's not the time. My time has not yet come. Wow. Here's a guy who has the, the one real capacity to save the world literally, and he would say, no, not yet. So not only would he do the Father's will and only the Father's will, he would do it in the Father's timing and only the Father's timing, and he would even go to the people who would be the ones the Father pointed out, go to the Jews first and not the Gentiles, not, not now. And, and then he said, I'll, I, I'll even be more specific, I'm going to go to the sinners, not the righteous. I'm going to go to the sinners. He had a very limited focus. For the guy who was going to impact all of history, his, his plan was pretty simple, wasn't it? Not real complex. Today, 
I was reading again, searching through the Gospels, and I found myself back in Luke chapter 2. So turn with me to Luke chapter 2, verse 52. It's a verse we mentioned in one of our previous series probably more than once. The scene is, is that Jesus, at 12 years old, this is the last we'll hear from him until he steps back onto the scene as an adult at 30 years of age to start his public ministry. The last scene that we, that we have recorded, right, on the person of Jesus Christ, he's 12 years old, his parents come to town, they go out of town, they look in the caravan a couple days later, oh, where's Jesus? I don't know. Let's go back into town and search for him. You remember the story, they find him where? In the temple, in, in his father's house. And you get the whole story where the parents come in and say, where have where you been? He says, I don't know why you didn't know I would be here. You should know that I would be about my... And it's very interesting. He says, my father's business. When his father, Joseph, is standing right there before him asking the question. It's a, it's a great story that we, that we looked at just briefly. But let me just give you the impact, uh, just, just the, the tip of the iceberg of the impact of what Jesus says to his earthly parents. He essentially says, I'm not just your son. And Joseph, you're not actually my father. And your home is not my home. This is my father's house. I'm the son of God, he's saying to them. And it says something to the effect here that they didn't really understand it. They didn't grasp it all. But you've got to imagine that those, that those encounters with the angel at the birth, they're thinking, yes, some of this is maybe starting to come together. This, this child is special. He does have a different father than, than maybe we thought. But then it says, as we, as we saw, and the reason we looked at it, he was humbly obedient even to his parents. He went back and he was, he was obedient to them. I want to focus back on verse 52. It says, Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. And here's the reason I want to focus on this verse, because this essentially is the last we hear about Jesus Christ for the next 18 years. Does that seem odd to you at all? I'll be honest. It sounds, it sounds a little strange to me. As this pastor is reading through the Gospels and I'm trying to learn from the everydays of Jesus Christ, I'm a, I'm a little... I'm a little troubled by the fact that we, we miss 18 years of his life. That would have been a little bit helpful to me. I think it'd be a little helpful to you. We've got to say, though, by the divine inspiration of God, that he, he chose that uh, that's not information we needed to know. I got to ask myself, why? I think it's a fair question. I don't think God's bothered by us asking those kind of questions. You ever ask those kind of questions when you're reading Scripture? Like, God, I, don't, I just don't get it. Like, if I were doing it, Lord, just, just saying, if I were writing this, I'd go ahead and map out those 18 years. I mean, it would help those of you who have teenagers especially, right, to see, see Jesus was obedient at age 16, right? Didn't stop at 12. He continued on. That would be helpful. Going to college, would that be helpful to have some of those college years of Jesus? Yeah? I think it would be. But the honest truth is we don't know. We don't have recorded those 18 years. These, these are the last words. And, and they're telling words. What do they say? And Jesus kept increasing. If we assume that this is going to be what God gives us to cover those 18 years, Jesus kept increasing. That means he kept growing. He kept expanding. He kept improving. 
There's a lesson right there. We could stop right there and I could, I could, I could just give you the one sermonette for today on the everyday life of Jesus that, hey, grown-ups, Jesus, throughout the rest of those 18 years, he never stopped growing. How about you, right? So we could make that a sermon, couldn't we? But that's not what, that's not what really caught my eye. Jesus kept increasing, specifically kept increasing in wisdom. Wisdom's, I mean, I think that's a key word. He wasn't just increasing in knowledge. He wasn't just gaining knowledge and reading books and things, right? I mean, wisdom is different from knowledge. We know that from Scripture, right? So we can make that our sermon for today, that, that Jesus didn't just grow, but he grew in wisdom. How are you doing? Are you growing? Are you growing in wisdom? It doesn't matter how old you are or how young you are. This should be the pattern of your life. It was the pattern of Jesus' dash. Your dash should be one that is growing and expanding, and expanding specifically in wisdom, not just gathering knowledge. How are you doing right there? says he also was growing, increasing in stature. It could be uh, translated age right there. It's just the idea that as he was getting older, he was improving in wisdom as well. Okay? But it also says that he was growing, increasing, expanding in favor with God. And man, that, that's, a, that's a sermon in and of itself, right? That for the dash of Jesus, he never stopped. He never stopped growing in favor towards God. That's one whole sermon right there. And then he never stopped growing in favor towards men. What all does that mean? I mean, did he not have some level of favor with the Father? And then he needed to continue to increase that favor with the Father? Was it lacking at one point? What all does that mean? There's a whole sermon there. I could challenge you on the tail end of that and say, listen, it wasn't just that he was increasing. He wasn't just growing spiritually. He was growing in favor with not just the Father, but with everyone around him, with men, with those who surrounded him, with those who who are on his human level. How are you doing right there? I mean, it's one thing to be growing spiritually, but there seems to be this this parallel track where we grow spiritually, we also grow socially with those around us. So we we can't be varsity spiritually and a freshman socially. Let me put it another way. You can't be growing in your relationship with Christ and be a jerk over here with everyone else. It doesn't work that way. Jesus grew in seemingly this parallel way. He enjoyed favor with God and at the same time favor with men. For one reason or another, for those next 18 years, we, we might assume that, that God was impressed, but men were also impressed. How were you doing? We could make that our sermon for today. Well, what kept nagging me as I, was, as I was thinking about those 18 missing years of Jesus was the question, what, what was he doing? <laughs> uh, just be honest, what was he doing for 18 years? He goes back to this small town. He lives in obscurity. You would think that if anything major happened, even if it wasn't recorded at the time, like we'd get, we'd get flashbacks to it once he did step publicly into ministry, like somebody would be talking about it, you would think that if he was was really out there about his faith or his testimony, they probably would have killed him sooner. And so I'm thinking, well, maybe that's that's part of it. Maybe he couldn't, maybe he had to wait those 18 years, and maybe he had to kind of hide in a sense. Maybe he had to keep who he was to himself as he was growing in favor and increasing in wisdom. Maybe he had to kind of keep the I am identity hidden because it wasn't the right time yet. So maybe that has something to do with it because then he would have been, he would have been taken out before it was the Father's timing. I, I, I don't know. Maybe, I think that has something to do with it. It wasn't the right timing. But what keeps nagging me is, is that here you have 
God in the flesh. Here you have the most influential preacher, teacher, the most impactful life that would ever be. And he spent 18 of his 33-ish years and we've got nothing beyond the fact that we see in this verse he kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. One of the questions that occurred to me, um, I sent out some random texts to guys that I appreciate in the faith, friends in the faith, and I said, hey, what do you think? This question keeps nagging me. What was Jesus doing for those 18 years and, 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 and why? Why did he wait? Why did the Father wait? If, he was wait? if Jesus was waiting on the Father, then why did the Father wait? Right? Whatever, whoever you want to blame. And uh, one of the thoughts that came back as I was dialoguing with a, with a buddy was that, you know, Jesus, for the redemption of our sins, Jesus very well could have been born, crucified the next day as an infant, and the redemption of humanity uh, would have been, in a sense, maybe complete because he was perfect. Yeah, I mean, I can see that's a valid perspective. John MacArthur put it this way. He says, you know, he says, I often wonder why if it were me, I would have said, hey, Jesus, listen, I'm going to need you to go down to earth just for the weekend. I don't really want to draw this whole thing out very long. Go down. We'll crucify you on Friday. We'll raise you up. We'll have you back by the end of the weekend. How's that sound? Can you do that? We'll get this whole thing done and taken care of. He could have done that. But he didn't. And we get 18 everyday years of Jesus that go by, and they don't even tell us about him, except that he keep, keeps increasing in wisdom and stature and favor with God and men. So it, it keeps nagging me. I thought of a couple other verses. Hebrews. These aren't going to be on your screen. If you want to turn, go to your right. Go to your right, past the epistles, First, Second Timothy, Colossians, all that. You land in uh, Hebrews. I think there's a I think there's a couple verses in Hebrews that hint to what was going on in those 18 years. All right. I think there's a, a couple verses in Hebrews that, after the fact, give us some commentary, maybe on what the will of the Father was and what God was up to in those missing years. Hebrews 4:15. The author is explaining how Jesus Christ would be the representative and the final high priest. The high priest was the one who would go into the Holy of Holies and offer the sacrifice on behalf of the whole nation. He was the representative spiritual head for the nation. He would offer sacrifice on behalf of the nation. But Hebrews would tell us that all high priests up to Jesus, all high priests were just like the rest of the people. They were the representative that made the offering. But guess what? They were just like those that they were making the offering for, meaning that they were all sinners. And so the high priest up to Jesus all had to make offerings for themselves as well. Does that make sense? And so then he starts to explain here in Hebrews about Jesus being the high priest. And we get some, we get some interesting concepts that come out. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 says this. It's a familiar verse, but think about it in today's context. For we do not have a high priest who cannot, what's the word? Sympathize with our weaknesses but one who has been tempted in, circle the word, all things as we are. And then, of course, but yet he was, what? Without sin. Without sin. When did this happen? When did this happen? If this is true, and it is, 
that he is our high priest, but he's not a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. And that would be said about all high priests prior to Jesus because what was true about the high priest was that he was a sinner just like everyone else. Well, what's true about Jesus is that he can identify and sympathize with us just like every high priest before him could, not because he was a sinner just like them, but in the sense that he has been tempted in all the ways that we sinners have been tempted. And that, uh, that's a staple of our faith, right? You've heard that growing up in church, that Jesus was tempted in all the ways that we were tempted. But if that's true, guess what it takes? It takes time. What was the father up to these 18 years? I don't know that it's the whole answer here, but it's got to be part of the answer, that the father knew that it would take a season of life. And I guess in his estimation, he decided it was going to take at least 30 years, 18 of which we don't really get any, anything about, except for the fact that we could probably pretty safely imply that Hebrews 4.15 is part of what was going on and being accomplished in those missing years of Jesus Christ. Let me, let me share a couple things with you. Back in, back in Luke, it uses different words for Jesus as it's going through the story of his childhood. In verse 2, verse 16 of Luke, you don't have to turn, just listen, uses the word brephos, it means infant. And so he was referred to as an infant. Chapter 240, he gets called a pation, that's a little child. In chapter 243, he gets called something different. He's now a, a pios, it's a child. In 252, the verse we have, now he's Jesus. So he was an infant, a child, a boy, and then by the time we get to 2.52 at age 12, which in the Jewish culture, in the Hebrew culture, it's the cusp of manhood. At 13, now you become, uh, by law, a man, right? And you're equal with your father at that age, and so they would, they would, um, they would mark that time for manhood. And so there, that, that last story we get about Jesus at age 12, we find him on the cusp of his manhood. He gets called Jesus. He doesn't get called one of those other words that refer to an infant, a little child, or even a grown child. He's now, he's now Jesus. And so we, we, we see he's going through this process. But, but listen, if Hebrews 4.15 is right, what we, what we have to understand is through, through all of those years and all of the years where he kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man, guess what? Jesus was being tempted, apparently, just as we are all tempted. And in all ways, he proved himself to be worthy to be the perfect sacrifice and the perfect high priest who wouldn't need sacrifice for himself but could offer sacrifice for the entire nation, the entire tribe, the entire nation, children of God. And so, in one sense, you, you, you want an answer. The answer is, is that wouldn't it have been a little bit of a, a slight for God to send the Son down, spend a weekend, be crucified, and then to say after the fact that He was tempted just like you and I are tempted? I mean, I think we would say, well, that doesn't make sense. I, I don't think so. One commentator says, you know, as an infant, Jesus was tempted as an infant is tempted. And he passed those temptations. Now, I don't know what that looked like. It's pretty entertaining just in my mind as I think about Jesus was a sinless infant, right? Did he not cry, you know? Was he not impatient for his bottle? Was he, was he uh, you know, understanding of the lack of sleep that his parents would have in those days? How about as a toddler? I mean, was he just, you know, was he just this little grown-up little man that just, I understand, Father. <laughs> I, you know, I don't know. But, but what we have to assume is that 
if Scripture is correct, that he was tempted in all ways at every part of his life, right? As an infant he was tempted, as a, as a little child, as a child, as a, as a teenager, right? That we would call it now. But in the Hebrew culture from age 13, you were just a man, right? They didn't have this drawn-out uh, drawn transition period for young men that we have these days. That's a whole other sermon and problem for another day. But he, 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 in his early young manhood, guess what? Apparently he, he faced stuff. I mean, that's good to know. The point is this. Uh, even though we don't get the details, we got to know that in those 18 years, Jesus was going through it so that Hebrews 4.15 could be true, so that Hebrews 4.15 could be an encouragement for you and I. In Hebrews 5, verse 8 and 9, we get, we get a couple more important verses. He says in this, Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. It could be translated, although he was son. You could take out the definite article. It's not there in the Greek. Although he was son. All right? It's interesting in and of itself. He learned obedience from the things which he suffered. So there was this, apparently there was this learning period. And it was a period in which he suffered. Now, you might just assume that that was the period right there at the end of his life where he suffered the passion of going to the cross, the beatings, the torture, the trials, etc. But most commentators, as I read, actually believe that, that that doesn't just refer to those final days of his life. It refers not only to the last three years of his life, but it, it refers to his entire life. In that Jesus, becoming the perfect high priest, was going through everything that you and I have to go through, and he, he lived it out through a portion of life, a sampling of life, a significant and sufficient sampling of life according to the divine will of the Father. He lived those years so that it could be said of him that he went through it like you and I go through it and he can identify with us, he can sympathize with us. Not only that, but he was perfect in doing it. In that time, Hebrews 5, 8 is also true, that although he was a son, he had to learn obedience. There was some learning that had to be done by Jesus. I don't understand that. I don't fully comprehend it. But somehow, in the maturing of the human side of this God-man, there was a way that he grew in favor with God. He grew in understanding of who he was and what he represented and what his mission and purpose was. There's a sense in which Jesus didn't get all this information fully downloaded, humanly speaking, when he was born. And as he grew, he grew in that wisdom. And as he understood, he grew in favor with God, probably, most likely, most commentators say, because he met every temptation and every challenge, and he met it perfectly, and he never failed, and he never faltered. And in all those years, he was able to grow in favor with God and with men, by the way, because he never faced a temptation that he did not overcome, that he did not conquer. And so he, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Going through all that, for all those years, even the missing years, most believe is, is what is in context there of those words through which he suffered. So expand your idea of what he suffered. He didn't just suffer the days before the cross. Can you imagine being God-man, right? And being, being God-man in the flesh, facing temptations, having more information than, than the rest of the world have, but having to be patient with those around you for all those years? 
I mean, coming down for a weekend and doing that, you could pull that off. But not only did he have to face regular temptations, he faced the temptation of just saying, hey, let's just get this over with. Let's just go ahead and do this thing. He had to face the temptation of doubting the father's timing for those 18 years that he had to just be in the carpenter's workshop of Joseph, his father, waiting for the father to say, now now it's time to step onto the scene. So it's pretty impressive. It's pretty humbling that Jesus learned obedience from the things which he suffered. I think in those 18 years he was going through that process. The next verse says this, Hebrews 5, 9. Check this out. And having been made perfect, meaning that he, he made it through all those, he was perfect in all ways, in all the temptations that he faced, in all those years, he can sympathize, identify with us because he was perfect. He became to all those who obey him the source of eternal life. In part, Jesus had to go through all that so that he could be the high priest that you and I can identify with. And also so that he could become like us in a real way. Not just in word, but in in life, indeed. He had to go through all that. He couldn't just come as an infant. He couldn't just come down for the weekend. He had to live. He had to be able to, to... Mark time on this earth so that the Father could say he gets it. There's a bigger reason, though. There's a bigger reason why he had to, why he had to go through all that he went through. 2 Corinthians 5.21 gives us a hint, I think. It says, He, the Father, made him, the Son, who knew no sin. In all that time period, he never knew sin, meaning he was never a sinner. He passed all the temptations, all the challenges. The, the, the word says, 2 Corinthians 5, that he, the Father, made him the Son who knew no sin. He was innocent. What does it say? Do you know? To become sin. In order that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, do you understand what it means that he made him sin? That is to say, he, he judged him on the cross for your sins and for my sins. So put this together here. I want to I want you to see two things and then we'll be done. He made him who knew no sin to be sin. And on the cross the father judged the son for for my 30 years. Not his. The Father judged the Son for your 30 years. Not his. See, Jesus was perfect. Not just for a weekend. Not just in a manger. But for all those years, he kept increasing wisdom, stature, favor, God, and men. There was no one who could find fault against him, not the Father, nor anyone around him, not in truth. He was blameless. He was guiltless for all those years. And yet the Father on the cross punished him as if Jesus as if Jesus lived my thirty plus years. 
He made him who knew no sin to become your sin, to become my sin, so that I could become the righteousness. So let me, let me say the second thing. Not only did the Father credit Jesus for my life and your life, which is an amazing thought in and of itself. Check this out. Conversely, when the Father looks at me, when the Father looks at you, do you know that you get credit? You get credit for Jesus' lifespan. So the fact that Jesus lived this perfect life is pretty important. Because now as the substitution for you and I, when the Father looks at the Son on the cross, He pours out His full wrath because He sees not the life of Jesus, He sees your life and my life. And at the very same time, when I step from time into eternity and I stand before my Creator, my Creator will not see my life by faith through His grace. The Bible says that He will see the faultless, guiltless, blameless, perfect life of Jesus Christ. Aren't you glad He didn't just come for a weekend? Aren't you glad it didn't end in the manger? Aren't you glad, even though we don't get the details, that he, that he had to go through those 18 years and that we, that we do find out that He faced everything that we have to face? Essentially, practically, He went through it and He met every challenge and He never faltered. He never dropped the ball. He never missed the target. He was perfect. Wow. That's impressive as we look at Jesus. But the Father, as we are covered by the blood of the Lamb, the Father now looks at you that way. The dash of Jesus. It becomes your dash. It becomes my dash. Pray with me. Father, we don't understand your plan in all of its details. And if we are honest and if we uh, were bold, there are times when we say that um, we'd have probably done it differently. And your plan doesn't make complete sense to us, Father. Lord, I don't know if this is the full answer to what in the world was Jesus doing for 18 years. I mean, I, I, Lord, honestly, I still, have some, I still have some gaps in my understanding of that. Some big gaps, if I'm honest. But if nothing else, I thank you that your word tells us that, that your son was, was living life. The everyday life. Work and family and community and, and all the temptations that come with that. He met them all and he won every battle. And he is, he is more than sufficient to be my high priest. Lord, it blows me away that, uh, that you could look at, at your perfect son and heap all your wrath for the weight of the sin of the world upon his shoulders. And Lord, I, I don't know what's more impressive 
that or the fact that you can look at me, you can look at any of us and give us credit for the sinless life of the only innocent human who's ever lived. Father, your son was not just patiently obedient. He wasn't just humbly obedient. He wasn't just simply obedient. But he was completely obedient. In every way, innocent. And we get the benefit. Lord, thank you that you see his dash and not mine. May your great love in the story of your son May it transform us into His likeness. May we become daily more like Your Son, motivated by Your great, Your great, great love story towards us, Your great redemptive love story towards us. Your love, Father, is amazing. It's steady and it's unchanging. Your love, Father, is greater, far greater than tongue or pen could ever, could ever explain. So, Lord, we, we take a final moment to sit under your, under your grace. We sit in awe of the magnitude of a story we don't fully comprehend. But we sit under love, nonetheless. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.